0: Welcome to the Buddha Sasana podcast. This talk was given by Biku Chintita in Chisago City, Minnesota. The Dhamma is generally framed in terms of suffering, everything from physical pain to existential angst, the things that bring us to Buddhist practice in the first place. Suffering isn't just there, it arises because of conditions. So let's start there. Conditionality Conditionality is the fabric of the world relating experiential events to each other. The Buddha recognized that experiential elements arise from causes and conditions and in turn represent causes and conditions for the arising of other phenomena. The teaching of conditionality or cause and effect is typically formulated in the suttas as follows.
1: When this is, that is.
0: From the arising of this comes the arising of that. When this isn't, that isn't. From the cessation of this comes the cessation of that. This, in a nutshell, might be considered the Buddha's greatest insight, the one which cracked open our diluted and persistent misperception of the world To reveal the true nature of reality. This insight is associated with the breakthrough to stream entry that establishes ourselves firmly in the path. Recall once again the words in an earlier talk that the Buddha's disciple Asaji spoke to Sariputta, and that Sariputta repeated to Moggallana, in each case arousing the vision of the Dhamma. Of those things that arise from a cause, the Tathagata has told the cause, and also what their cessation is. This is the doctrine of the great recluse. It should be noted that the actual underlying mechanisms of conditionality, whatever they might be, are not of particular relevance, for they are generally beyond immediate experience. Only the fact that the arising of persistence or cessation of one phenomenon observably correlates with the rising or persistence or cessation of others. It should be appreciated that conditionality makes all elements of experience contingent on other elements. Since a given element is both effect of something and cause of something, experience is in constant flux. The most prominent example of conditionality in all of the Dhamma is the second noble truth.
1: And this, monks, is the noble truth of the origination of suffering,
0: the craving that makes for further becoming accompanied by passion and delight, relishing now here and now there, that is, craving for sensual pleasure, craving for becoming, craving for becoming other. The Buddha's reliance on conditionality is refreshingly satisfying to the rationally scientific modern person, applied the objective world, it would exclude the supernatural, which would violate natural laws and therefore ignore the norms of conditionality. However, although we moderns readily acknowledge the conditioned structure of the physical world, we do not so readily do this in the mental world. Perhaps because we assume this world to be dominated by oodles of unconstrained free thinking. Although the Buddha attributes a degree of volition to the mental realm, he views it as highly conditioned by factors that can be deliberately overridden only with great effort. The full value of conditionality lies in that the understanding of conditionality in the physical or mental realms allows us to engineer desirable outcomes by steering conditions so as to produce those desired outcomes further up chains of cause and effect. Ultimately, we hope, through Buddhist practice, to bring the fires of suffering under some degree of control. To extinguish a fire, we cannot directly will it to extinguish itself, nor burn more brightly, so we try to control its conditions, heat, oxygen, and fuel. Dousing it with water deprives it of oxygen. Blowing on it may give it more oxygen, but also reduce its temperature. Building a fire break or removing a log might deprive it of fuel. Similarly, we cannot will suffering to end with the command... Don't worry, be happy. So we try to control its conditions, such as craving and contact. We cannot will craving to end with don't be so needy. So we look for the conditions of craving in turn and then try to control those and so on. Origination of undesirable factors is matched by their cessation as in the third noble truth. And this, monks, is the noble truth of the cessation of suffering, the remainderless fading and cessation, renunciation, relinquishment, release, and letting go of that very craving. Conditionality for the Buddha is taken as a universal principle underlying all experience and events. Nothing happens of itself, but only through conditions, and there is no first condition to anything. Conditionality is the fabric of the world. Although conditionality is described as a relation between a phenomenon and its cause or its set of conditions, when scaled up into a mesh of such phenomena, the resulting system can exhibit a quite complex dynamic, which can be difficult to track with many loops and collateral effects. The dynamics of such a net of conditionality is called dependent co-arising. For clarity, the suttas tend to attribute a single condition to a single effect when talking about conditionality or dependent co-arising when properly any single factor generally has multiple conditions and multiple effects. Accordingly, there are many references to linear causal chains in early Buddhism, each of which really represents a thread through a dense causal net of contingency. Such chains can line up desirable, wholesome factors such as the seven factors of awakening. Mindfulness gives rise to investigation. Investigation gives rise to energy. Energy gives rise to delight. Delight gives rise to calm. Calm gives rise to concentration. And concentration gives rise to equanimity. We'll see later how individual factors can be strengthened, in this case, to enhance the strength of factors further downstream for a more beneficial outcome. Other times such chains line up undesirable, unwholesome factors, such as these. Feeling gives rise to craving. Craving gives rise to seeking. Seeking gives rise to gain. Gain gives rise to valuation. Valuation gives rise to fondness. Fondness gives rise to possessiveness. Possessiveness gives rise to ownership. Ownership gives rise to avarice. And avarice gives rise to guarding, and so on. Impermanence. Although every factor of experience or of the world out there is highly contingent and in flux, we often imagine them differently. Perception tends to idealize an outer world as more permanent, more pleasurable, more personalized, and more beautiful than things really are. We fabricate this in our delusion as a world of rather fixed things than become attached to them and suffer as a consequence. In fact, our own self is the primary example. To bring us back to reality, the Buddha asks us always to keep in mind the three signs underlying everything in the phenomenal world. These three signs are impermanence, suffering, and non-self. What we think is more or less fixed will really turn out to be impermanent. Because we attach to what we think is fixed, it is a source of suffering. If it's impermanent and a source of suffering, it cannot be ourself. In whatever way they imagine, thereby it turns otherwise. Otherwise. Because of conditionality, everything in our world is in a state of flux, continually born from conditions, and also dying with conditions. Food we buy, our furniture, our car, our own bodies, even mountains. Everything and everyone we cherish will be lost to us one by one until the ones that remain lose us. The world is slipping by like sand through our fingers. There is no happy ever after with regard to the things or people of the world. Our conceptual constructions simply do not keep pace with the unfolding of the world. Because things are impermanent, when we seek gratification in something fixed, we forget that some sodic life Has been a continual series of broken promises. That which is craved causes us suffering because we cannot rely on it. If we've lost what we cherish, we suffer. If we still have it, we're anxious that we will lose it. And we particularly suffer when what we cherish is closely identified with ourselves, such as our immediate family members or our bowling championship. We crave because we do not fully understand the three signs. Contemplating impermanence, suffering, and non-self reveals the false premises that underlie much of the world as we have grown to know it. As an empirical matter, the three signs win all debates yet we find it perplexingly easily to overlook them. The three signs remind us of the primary human absurdity, that we grow the world out there in our own minds in a certain way, then we take it seriously as something real and substantial, then we become infatuated with its objects, and then we crave them much like Pygmalion of Greek legend. The three signs remind us that these objects are by nature unreliable and explain why they cause us distress when we have a stake in them or try to identify with them. These reflections aim at the fading of passion. Our infatuations are over things that are too hot to handle, things that are not what they promise. A meaningful life lies elsewhere. The Four Noble Truths The Four Noble Truths give us the most recognized instance of causality along with the engineering through practice of more beneficial results. Understanding and practice are paired as follows. Suffering, which is to be understood... The origin of suffering, which is craving, which is to be abandoned. The cessation of suffering, which is the cessation of craving and which is to be realized. The path of practice to the cessation of suffering, which is right view, right intention, right action, right speech, right livelihood, right effort, right mindfulness, and right concentration, and which is to be developed. Notice that the fourth truth, the path to the cessation of suffering, is simply the Noble Eightfold Path, the path in Buddhist path. In this way, everything reported in this series of talks is actually subsumed under the Four Noble Truths. A significant point about the Four Noble Truths aside from their highlighting of a conditional relation, is that they fully integrate understanding and practice. In their most concise form, they would appear to be four empirical propositions subject to verification, and are, in fact, referred to as truths. In their full formulation, we're given a practice for each of the truths, understanding abandoning, realizing, and developing, respectively. More generally, each teaching within right view can be seen as the view that results in wholesome action, karma, which is to say practice with beneficial results. This establishes the relationship of understanding to practice, referred to in earlier talks. Together, these practices conspire to rid us of suffering. Suffering is where we begin our spiritual quest. If we did not suffer, if life were already nothing but delight and joy, it would never occur to us to have spiritual aspirations, nor begin Buddhist practice in the first place. But few understand the nature of our suffering. It needs to be examined carefully. When we understand suffering, we can discover its origin in craving. Recall from much earlier talks that unskillful mental factors are those based in greed, hatred, and or delusion, and that the arising of an unskillful factor has suffering as its shadow. While greed and hatred are forms of craving, craving to gain what is desired, and to avert what is not desired. And delusion is the source of greed and craving, particularly the delusion of a fixed self. If we abandon greed, hatred, and delusion, we realize the cessation of suffering and our spiritual quest is at an end. We find that the full understanding of all of these truths brings us indeed The whole of the Dhamma. And in this sense, the Four Noble Truths by themselves exhausts right view. The formulation of the Four Noble Truths has been compared to a doctor's evaluation, which also merges understanding and practice. Suffering is the symptom, the origin is the diagnosis, the cessation is the prognosis. And the path is the treatment. The Buddha uses the same basic formula with respect to other mental factors, besides suffering and craving, as we'll soon see, with the treatment in each case consisting significantly of the same noble Eightfold Path. For convenience, I'll call this general formula in the discussion of these cases the Four Truths Formula. Let's stop here for today. The Dhamma is often criticized as pessimistic for focusing on suffering so much. However, its focus on suffering is like the logic of a car mechanic or a doctor. If we understand what is going on, then maybe we can do something about it. Next week, we'll discuss what we do about our suffering.